Hi, everyone. I'm Alex Carpenter. I'm Elizabeth Van Royen, and, and this, this is, is the Firestarters, Firestarters Podcast. Podcast. In this episode, we discuss some of the opportunities that blend together the medical industry, open source, and artificial intelligence. But first, I'd like to introduce you to our guest, Simon Biggs. He is a medical physicist who is passionate about what beautifully written software can do for patients. Let's dive into the show. Thanks for joining us, Simon. Thank you, Alex. Um, So, to begin with... Uh, how would you define your industry for the purposes of this podcast? I would say it is uh, open source medical devices, software as a medical device, as well as radiotherapy and AI. Fantastic. I know nothing about all of those, so this will be a great discussion. Uh, There's a lot of things, different rabbit holes we could start with, but I suppose AI is the one that flags just because of the recent changes and developments that have been happening this year alone. AI, I feel, has been a field that people have been talking about for many years and, and it's always been coming, but not quite there yet. And then little signs of somewhat useful things. And then this year, it seems to be cascading a domino effect of more and more useful things and people getting more and more agitated and excited. Are we finally at this dawn of like AI is going to take over the world and we all won't have jobs next year? Are we finally there? <laughs> I was reading something that I was uh, is interesting is, is prior to the nuclear weapons being created, scientists, when you're asking them, you know, how far away are we from a chain reaction being created? The answer was always no, between five and 50 years. And that answer was about always the same. So I would say, no, we're about five and 50 years away from that, Alex. <laughs> but in reality, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Like, it's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, as a background on me is I'm not a, I am not an expert in, in future telling of where AI is going to be. And I, I would be hesitant and, and skeptical of, of anybody who claimed to be able to do that. But certainly there have been some very interesting developments uh, very recently and also, uh, you know, uh, over the last. So, yeah, I'm happy to jump into those if you want, but they would give signposts of where we're going. I, I don't know if I could project. Let, let's talk about where we are and I'll, I'll, I'll use a, a, a subject close to your heart. One in three people are going to have cancer. And so that means that radiotherapy will most likely need to be uh, used as a treatment. Part of radiotherapy Mm. is drawing circles around cancers. Um, Mm. That's currently done manually by hand. Um, Surely AI could integrate into that system to make that better. How far away is that from reality? Well, back in 2018, there was papers about uh, how you can do that quite well. The difficulty is actually getting that into the clinic there's this sort of 80%, 20% rule where the first 80% where you can show this all works, you can draw lines around it and put it out in a research paper and have it there. You can get to that point quite quickly with, with the tools that we've got in AI. It's that last mile of uh, getting it into hospitals, um, uh, having it be, make it sure that it works. So an example is uh, in Darwin, uh, some patients have to travel very long distances to come into hospital. And as a result, their cancers are bigger. And so you have whole different demographics and therefore different images that it might have worked in a hospital 
uh, in Sydney, but all of a sudden a hospital in, in Darwin, it doesn't work anymore. Or a hospital in Australia doesn't work in Singapore, or there are all these uh, safety requirements around that. But in reality, you can say, well, we were there back in 2018. Whether or not you can walk into a hospital and have that help you today, well, it depends which hospital. Um, in the recent times, there are some where that is possible, but it's not there yet for everywhere. I wonder if you can see any examples where within AI or, or even um, within medical devices as software, software as a medical device, whether there's examples where certain countries have leapfrogged and now doing things in a different way because they're in a different context. We have amazing, amazing education systems here in Australia and in first world countries training our doctors. And, and access to doctors for diagnosis purposes in some countries is, is very difficult. I saw a recent uh, article where a, a particular company was sending out chips with AI on the chip and it was all for offline use and it was helping diagnose x-ray CTs and effectively they could send that completely offline model on this hardware to a, a remote community where they don't have access to maybe the right uh, people to, to do these diagnoses. I mean, I don't know all the details around it, but the idea is amazing that you can you can take some knowledge from doctors here in Australia, maybe embed part of that on a chip. I mean, in, in Australia, we have the benefit of we have doctors as a second check on that AI, and in that sort of in that third in that developing country, they're not going to have that. But then the question you ask, well, if they didn't have the doctor to start with, is having that chip still better than nothing? And I would, without knowing the data, I'd hazard a guess. It very well could be, um, and that would be amazing if it was, uh, is it, if it was able to help those. So yeah, that's and and now they have an AI chip being deployed, <laughs> which uh, which is effectively actually being used in a way that that we're not happy potentially. I, I, this is this is me hypothesizing and putting a story on it. You know, in Australia, we're not using it in such a way where it a doctor always has to be in the loop. Uh, generally, there are some scenarios where not, but as a general rule, if, if possible, we we put a doctor in the loop. But in that scenario where you're deploying a chip like that to a developing country, well, they're effectively leapfrogging us. They're using the software that here we're saying, oh, we want to keep a doctor in the loop. And they're saying, well, it's the best we've got. So we're going to keep going with that. Um, And that's on one hand sad because it means the reason why we're keeping a doctor in the loop is because it makes mistakes sometimes. And so it's effectively saying we're okay with it making mistakes and it not having someone there. Um, But we're also saying, well, they didn't have a doctor, so this is an improvement. Uh, it's a hard question, but it is an I improvement. I mean, it, it triggers a really big thought for me. When the combustion engine came about and that triggered the Industrial Revolution, it wiped out lots of particular types of jobs that could be automated by an engine, and that rippled around the whole world. Like, the entire world was impacted by that because everybody had those kinds of jobs. Hmm. Within the next industrial revolution, if we can think of AI creating and, and all of the you know deep technology that we now have at our fingertips, those creating the next or another industrial revolution, and that is replacing a whole suite of jobs, that won't actually be impacting the entire world in a negative way in the same way that the first one did, because not everybody has doctors. So if you can put a doctor on a chip, The doctor, if the chip is better than a doctor, which is theoretically possible within the next few years, if not now or the next decade or whatever, but theoretically we could get a chip with some AI on it to be better than a doctor. 
the doctors that are currently existing and currently getting trained, they might not be very happy about that. But in a lot of the world, well, those those doctors don't have jobs because they never got the training. So they're not going to be, they're, they're not there to be unhappy. And so actually it's going to leapfrog having to train and start medical schools and do all of this training. And actually the chip with the AI is being developed in places that do have the doctors and do have that feedback loop. And then that technology leapfrogs medical schools. And so in that way, it's like, whoa, that's a huge difference. Some countries will have medical schools. Some countries won't need medical schools, not to the same extent. And it's like that, that's pretty exciting. So my background is as a medical physicist, and I loved embedding my knowledge into software and saying, what can I take and automate with what I know and have it go and do things for me on behalf of me? But there's this, there's this interesting thing that I learned is that you can kind of optimize for efficiency or optimize for quality. And they're a little bit orthogonal in the sense that sometimes you can be focused on efficiency or sometimes you can focus on, and sometimes you can trade off between one or the other. There's a person I respect a lot and he told me this story as a sort of a warning. And so he worked for one of the big vendors um, in our, in, in the radiotherapy industry. And the big vendors, what they did is they, there's this procedure where they validate that the hardware that they've built is fit for purpose to be shipped off to you know, uh, customers around the world. And they used to use like a team of 20 engineers to do this process every for every machine. And so the vendor said, all right, we want to automate this. Let's automate this whole process. And so they distilled the knowledge of these engineers into this code uh, and automated the process. And it was great. And so then they, they fired all the engineers and, 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 and kept going. And then it broke. <laughs> and so what they'd done is that they'd taken these 20 engineers who have been brilliantly doing this thing for the last however many years, and then they tasked them to automate their knowledge. And they did very well at that. But it wasn't at that time capable of doing new things. And so uh, when something went wrong, they'd now fired all the people who had built up that knowledge in their company and they couldn't hire, it was very difficult for them to hire them back again. They'd gone and done other things. And that kind of knowledge was very unique and very specific. They effect, effectively lost the capacity to do that. It would be really, really, really sad if medical schools disappeared. I'm thinking about the monumental task of trying to do health, like world-leading healthcare for the 8 billion people that are now on the planet and the, the soon-to-be nine and, and 10 billion people on the planet. Like that's a very large number. I'm thinking about how we organize the treatment of such an enormous number. And so then I think about, well, what current ways do we, what current systems do we have where thousands upon thousands of people are working together in collaboration to solve an actual problem and in my view, I just described open source. Um, so I'm wondering how you see open source as a technology, because it's, it's a way of, of governing social governance to achieve an outcome, which is really grassroots and decentralized and, and I think massively powerful. I think that the concept that technology has allowed open source to be as effective as it is is only just starting to ripple through our culture mm -hmm. now. And so I'm thinking if you apply open source 
to the medical world and how those two are going to interact, what could be some of the opportunities that come out of that? What could that look like? How would that work? One of the things that absolutely amazed me about open source is um, some people might not realize it, but Google and Microsoft collaborate on the Chrome and the Edge browser. So you've got, you've got Microsoft and Google, which in many ways are competitors and have competing interests. And they are building a product which competes with each other. They're building Chrome and Edge, which both compete with each other. And they're collaborating on that project. So Chromium, which is under the hood, is the engine that builds Chrome. It is what Google builds Chrome on top of and what Microsoft builds Edge on top of. And so open source is this ama- has this amazing capacity to take people with competing interests, competing capacity, competing approaches, and it brings them together and helps them to collaborate on a core component. And so in a scenario where you've got different countries around the world with you know, differing interests, uh, where you've got different hospitals which, which have different resource constraints, you know, if you write some code within a hospital and you just want to share it with the hospital down the road, <laughs> the amount of effort to just be able to have code move from one hospital to another is sometimes insurmountable. Like it is oftentimes insurmountable, actually. And so if that hospital as a whole has agreed to an open source, has undergone an open source agreement under certain scenarios where it's been very clear, here are the rules that we all decided that we'd agree to. Under these scenarios, we're allowed to collaborate on this type of code in this type of way. Putting that agreement in place is it would be a bucket load of effort. But once that is in place, you've, you've opened up a channel of collaboration which right now just doesn't exist. Like in some places through research, there's this sort of very slow, but it's, but in, for many hospitals, that channel of collaboration just isn't there. And, and, and for AI, if we really want to be on the crest of innovation in AI, we need to set up these channels. So in my mind, I'm probably going to butcher this too, but uh, when, when, you, when you add a current to a diode, so the electrons can go up to a, 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 cha- a region where the, the, the current is allowed to flow. And so there's, there's this area where the, the current is allowed to flow, but inside it's all trapped. And until you sort of release the trap, the current can't flow. And it's almost like you've got this diode where everyone's innovation is trapped in the traps of the, of, of the hospitals. And, and you just need to apply a little bit of current in the right place to, to jump those electrons up into the into the, the conducting band. One of the avenues to have the AI and, the, and people partnered as well as third world countries, second world countries, first world countries, and with all these different competing interests, um, the way that it's done has been done so well in the software industry is through that conduction band of open source. You know, you've got all these sort of proprietary locks over here, but you take a part and you throw it into the conduction band and all of a sudden innovation can flow and so it's like, if we can put, there is a bit of hard work to happen. And, I, and I'm hoping to try and do a lot of that. I, I want to be part of building conduction bands between hospitals um, so that innovation can flow. Um, and it's going to take a lot of people to do that. Uh, a lot of people working together. But once those our agreements are in place, yeah, we really can have this scenario where you have a system deployed in, in, in a third world country that is automatically giving feedback through an open source framework to a centralized repository. And I mean, this, this can be privacy preserving, like you can, you can uh, it needs to be. So you, you can have patient information, you can collect bulk statistics of, all right, 
60% of patients had this issue and 30% had this issue. And you can have that reported back to the central system to go, all right, when, when it was deployed in this country, these were the issues that were seen. It doesn't tell you who, who it happened to or, or all the general specifics, but you can have this sort of open data stream of, of, of privacy-preserving data being sent to a central open repository that any anybody in the world could go and you know research on or do some in, or, or feed into their machine learning systems or uh, and and also provides feedback to this group that's building this software and collaborating on the software and people can still build their chromes and their edges on top um, but but putting the having that, that sort of the, the chromium core under the hood I think is the way that we are going to is one of the ways and probably I, I think one of the best ways that we could we could actually achieve that that scenario of, of many different parties and AI and human and people uh, coming together to really do something really awesome here. How can we let innovation grow while being respectful to regulation? They seem to be opposed to each other in so many different ways. And I'm, I'm actually thinking about, you know, the example of um, the creation of all of the innovations that came out of World War II. You know, they were in this, this sub-team of people that were working together next to but separated from the big machine that is the governance and the regulation and, and, and the actual defense force and they were in this strange, you know, team of, of rebels trying to create things, and then they would introduce things into the bigger system. That's that's how um, you know the, a lot of those innovations came. So, like, innovation needs freedom to break things, but in the medical world, the freedom to break things literally means you're killing people. So, we're not quite okay with that. In in the financial world, we've seen that play out, and most people are not okay with that. Now the results are in. And so I feel like there's going to be a backswing to, well, let's regulate everything to an inch of its life and and kill innovation. And it's like both options seem so bad. How do we chart a path forward for the whole world of innovation so that we can actually make progress rather than building things that burn down only to take learnings and then build more things that burn down. Yep. I, I think you need both in parallel. So I, I'm using as a metaphor my own code base. It sounds a bit weird, but I have a prototyping code base, which is over here, which I'm able to test on retrospective data and validate how things are going. And then I have another code base where every single line of code is being reviewed by a guy in New Zealand. And and the thing is, is you can imagine the, the amount of time it takes to get something through the review process and or, or all of that framework. By the way, that is the what will be the regulated code base is that one that's getting every line reviewed. There's two problems which both need to be avoided. There's a lot of work going into that regulated one. It would really suck if that ship was going in the wrong direction. <laughs> like, it, let's say this is a rowboat, and and but the rudder is and the rudder is pointed a certain direction, and it takes a while to row it. And you've got this little speedboat that can go, you know, all over the place. You kind of need the speedboat to run ahead to the location of where you want to go, and then call back to the rowboat saying, "Hey, this is the angle you should be you should be aiming at," and then have your rowboat go. And 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 we, we it plays out quite a bit already in how how we do things. Is you'll have people in universities doing research and publishing papers. And then you have industry, you know, developing a product. 
I guess what I'm trying to do is let's just, that idea is good. Let's just try and improve the feedback loop. Like let's, at the end of the day, those two points need to just become closer together and be able to feedback between each other quicker. It's not that the industry needs to drop its standards or that the research needs to be locked down so it can't go and find out all these new amazing things. It's just that you need to make the conduction band between researchers and industry have better feedback between the two. And so if industry is providing open source medical devices, which are going through their regulatory framework, which are being locked down, having every line of code reviewed, undergoing automated testing, having all of the the AI models being uh, validated on a range of data sets from a range of different demographics. If you have that happening on the industry side, but there's a conduction band between industry over to the researchers where they can download that whole medical device, absolutely break it and play around with it and, and go to town with it and publish more papers. But then also say, hey, he was the key thing to industry that actually made this help. Can we have come to some sort of agreement where you can help fund our research and and we can keep breaking things and doing things? But when they're breaking things, they're not killing people. They're investigating on retrospective data or, or, or in sandboxes. Or once it gets to a certain point, maybe undergoing a clinical trial, but that clinical trial... Now, now is sort of a little bit between those two, where it has does have sufficient regulatory frameworks around it to recognise that it is a new thing, but it's also, so there's some sort of uh, there's a range of ethics and things that need to be undergone there, and it's kind of a midway point um, between those two. But yeah, effectively, I'm, uh, you need you need the, the the boat out there searching for where to go and trying to find where the oil is or find where the gold is or the direction that we should be going. And then a recognition that the regulated, lockdown, um, quality-preserving version will go slower. But quality also is knowing the direction to go. An, an amazing bug which is missed is going the wrong direction. You can go in the wrong direction with every quality system in the world, but, but that's a bug. Going in the wrong direction is a bug. So having this feeler out, trying to find where the right direction is, is also really part of your quality system, trying to pull, make sure you're actually going in the way that will save the most lives or, or help the most people. Yeah, so I think you need both. So how, how does having a industry that is, in that analogy, the slow-moving one and mm. the research, which in your analogy in the medical space is the one that's going fast, I'm thinking of just about every other industry where it's the industry going fast and the research kind of just doing whatever it wants and it's not really talking to industry at all and research just is irrelevant, seen, seen as irrelevant to the industry. And I think a, an easy uh, straw man argument is, is the space of entrepreneurship. I know the research. I know the industry. They don't talk to each other. I know both and nobody is interested that I know both because they don't think each other has anything to say to each other. And so I talk to researchers and they're not interested in industry and I talk to industry and they're not interested in the research. Um, So I'm thinking about like AI is the example though, because Mm. AI is a lot of research is being done by the industry, but it's being done in a way that is research, but it's not done by universities it's done by google and and industry and so how does that all work and is that a prototype for other industries where the risk of death is lower because medicine is is a slightly different higher risk so in ai there's a slightly lower well quite a lower risk 
general AI aside, maybe that is a big risk, but let's put that aside for a sec. How does AI progress so fast, especially this year? How has this suddenly all come out of seemingly nowhere and it doesn't seem to be university researchers leading the way? How does that work? Yes, I mean, I when I was saying research, I wasn't actually in my mind thinking necessarily university researchers. It's researchers who are in hospitals or in industry or in research development groups in industry or in universities. Um, the I certainly have one of the things that seems to be a trend is that blue sky research that doesn't have a practical use in the very near future um, generally doesn't find a, a home very well in industry. Um, research that is likely to be financially viable in the near future is likely to get much more funding when it's done within the industry itself. And so there ends up sort of being, if you want to find out where all the best fusion research is happening, well, it's probably happening uh, through government grants and universities. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I don't do fusion research, but actually Google is doing some fusion research with DeepMind. But yeah, like, uh, so some context there is that um, recently it's an amazing paper came out of DeepMind from industry that was able to stabilize uh, uh, the, the fusion reaction um, using AI from DeepMind. And that's really cool. Uh, so that was actually a serious breakthrough coming from industry. I'm curious now to dive into uh, and speculate around thinking now about um, general AI and all the different AI models uh, that are running around the world. Um, I, I wondered if you could speculate on which model is the current leader in getting to that general AI goal um, and then what is general AI and then how far away is it? <laughs> this is me stepping way outside of my... I, I know I, I am doing AI in radiotherapy, but in my mind what AGI is, and importantly people sort of think of it as like, oh, when it gets sentient. I, you, don't, you don't need sentience for AGI. You just need something that is good enough to solve general problems. The idea is in any problem or in most important problems or, or problems of significance, it is able to do it better than us. And one of the key things with that is one of the things that we are doing is we are building AI. So if this AI is good at or better than us at doing things, it would also be better at making AI than us. And so you, you hit this, you hit this feedback loop. And so, you know, sort of a, there's a scenario that when people are talking about it is, you know, let's say um, pe people think that if you've got a, a very smart human, a human who's, who's not as smart, um, you, we think the difference between those two humans is huge. But really, if you look at the time scale, the, the scale of intelligence, you have a worm, then you have like a cockroach, and then you have like a, 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 a mouse, and then you have a dog, and then you have, uh, I don't know, somewhere there's a, there's a dolphin and a chimp, and then you have... On that scale, uh, the range of human intelligence is very small. And, uh, and, and, and if we're looking at the path of human intelligence increasing and, and on one day you've got the intelligence of a worm, the next day you're, you've got the intelligence of a mouse, and then you have the intelligence of a chimp, and then you have the intelligence of a not very smart human, and then you have the intelligence of a very smart human, and then you have the intelligence of, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> like, and, and then they're like, oh, what are you doing now? Oh, oh. And, and the thing is, is once you tip over, and this isn't a linear scale, is the idea, the theory goes, is that once, once you hit human level intelligence, if humans are able to reproduce human level intelligence, then the thing that we create will be able to do that too and, and do it faster than us without sleeping. 
And, and so you might go to sleep one day and then wake up the next morning and all of a sudden you've got a thing which is uh, way smarter than anybody and maybe way smarter than all of human intelligence combined across the world, as if it could communicate instantaneously almost. Imagine if you could make this intelligent being that could immediately collect all of the information across all of the earth that we've ever built, that we've ever collated onto the internet and then parse it and then come up with problems. No human can can read every paper. No human can... But but an AI could, and 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 an AI could do it continuously, and and then use that to build better AI. So this thing that we call intelligent doesn't have to be sentient; it just has to be very good at doing things. Look, I'm no, I'm no expert on AGI at all, um, and I do like that statement that you know before we invent, before we determined the chain reaction, it's very hard. It's very hard to predict how far away something is uh, when you haven't solved it yet. Because all it takes is one fundamental flaw in the possibility of solving it to make it take five to fifty years from now, and so so who, whose whose model is the best then? At least there that we could who's winning the race at the moment, in your opinion? Fundamentally, one of the things that's important in intelligence is being able to communicate. So fundamentally, being able to understand language because when you understand language and then speak language back, you have to fundamentally know some connection between what makes sense when you say those words. And so these large language models, um, although right now they often do very stupid things, are, you know, still are pretty amazing in what they can do. Even when they do it right, it's quite amazing. When they do it wrong, it's quite scary, but they're still very amazing nonetheless. I think what is really neat is there's a tool at the moment where it's just in beta, but you can type in a search and it will use AI to search the literature, the scientific literature. And then it will collapse the scientific literature into a summary and then use that to decide to, to answer your question and then provide all of the papers that it used to get that answer for you. And that's, that's a really amazing little tool. But then imagine if you've got this large language model that is trying to do anything in the world. One of its steps could be to essentially do that effectively. All right. One of the things you do in your step to find out truth, to find out what's the best course of action is consult all the literature. Another thing you do is consult all of the internet on other research, but but maybe weight it a bit differently or maybe have different weightings for different things. And maybe it learns that anyway. And effectively, if you have this process where you can have a task that you need to go and do, and then you can go and search the internet, then you lay out your thought process of what that means. And then you can use that thought process to pull out what a given search is or, or what, how to find that in papers, and then use the results of that to feed back into further actions and then maybe you could uh, make a trade. As a result, you could go and then write some code that makes a trade on the stock market or goes and um, buys something off Amazon or goes and hires somebody and gives them a job description and asks them to do a thing and, and, then, and then gets the results from that. And then go, like effectively, the task of being good at doing things and orchestrating things is, is a... That particular paper, I believe it was called React with a capital A. And, and the, the GPT models that are coming out at the moment don't actually have that embedded in it. Um, there is a group, I think Dust TT, that is, that is, allows you to do these sorts of things. But I would suspect that GPT-4, when it comes out, uh, probably has some of this sort of characteristics built in if they release it, if they, if they release these characteristics built in. But I struggle to see the difference between that and what I do when I'm trying to solve a problem. And so that would put like a three to six month timeline on something that is very good at doing things, whatever that means. Thank you so much, Simon. That, that has been a brilliant discussion. 
Thank you, Alex. Thanks for listening. If this episode fanned your flame, we'd love to help. Just go to guildofentrepreneurs.com. We are a decentralized community ensuring that every entrepreneur is supported. And we'd love to see you there. Until next time. Bye.